Hello and welcome back to the lecture series with Reb T, which we try to do in a bi-weekly format. The year where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic is commit and don't quit. The sources are from Safaria unless noted otherwise. Look out for the points to carry over, which we try to do in bold, italicized, and underlined. Usually if you're looking at the sources online. All shirim are on shirenjoyment.com slash shirim slash shirim dash reb dash t. Shout out to Jake W. and Ellie N. for all their amazing hard work on shirenjoyment.com. Note that the lecture series, the PAL, the Audio DT and OT Talk Show, are on different podcast forms as well as the DAF Show. Sheer is on Sheer Enjoyment, of course. Please feel free to email me at rebt at sheerenjoyment.com, R-E-B-T, at sheerenjoyment.com. The Sheer should serve as a zechus, le'iloi nishmas leib ben Natan, or leib ben Nasan, and Eli Melach David, Ben Dov Beryl. The shir should also serve as a zechus for the Rafua Shalema of Yisrael Yitzchak ben Rifgalea, Shlomo ben Saradina, for the continued health and nachat of Livia Margalit bat Ilana Devora to her family, and for anyone sick or needing Yeshua Rafua or a Rafua. And the shir should lastly be a zechus for Shalom Bayis for those who are struggling, and as a zechus for those who are looking for their zivogim or their shidduch or their marriage partners. Many of us are no stranger to commitment. We take on massive amounts of roles. We take massive amounts of job opportunities. We are no stranger to commitment. We have so many commitments in our own life. The biggest one, probably marriage. And next to that, having and raising children. Think about your own life. What is the biggest commitment in your own life? In our own lives, anything we set out to do and to keep up with is a commitment that we need to stick to. If you join the DAF, you have a commitment to continue and do the DAF every single day. No matter what day it is, no matter if you have to go to a simcha, no matter if you have to go out to shul, no matter if it's Tisha B'Av or if it's Yom Kippur, no matter if it's Shabbos or Yom Tov, every single day. If you do Shnai Mikra, it's supposed to be done Every day, if you're part of daily learning emails, sign up at ou.org. I happen to love the emails. They come to me every day. Got to try to read them every day. So it's part of a commitment to read them, even something as small as that. You're supposed to do it every day. If you run workshops or seminars or mentor others, I myself took on a fieldwork student this semester. I love it, but it's a big commitment. Anything we do in life on some level, whether big or small, can be a commitment depending on the frequency, but we need to keep to it. If you're a writer, you commit to deadlines. If you're working on a book, you commit to writing it and finishing it. If you take a job, you commit to that job. You have to do it every day, whatever the roles may be, whether a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a therapist, or the like. Of course, in marriage, which we're going to talk a lot about, that's a major commitment also. Major, major commitment. And your job is a major commitment. And as Jewish people, serving Hashem, a major commitment, how we do it in the right way, following the mitzvahs and Torah and chesed through all of our lives every single day. The main point to remember is make sure to commit and don't quit. Commit and don't quit. 
When I was thinking about working for the public school system, which I do now, and I love it, thank God, when you think about the years we're supposed to put in, if a person joins work when they're 20, 23, 25, 27, like some of us, you know, you commit to that job, it seems like a long commitment. How many years until I could retire? Some people were tier one, some people were tier four, which was like a great tier. I came in at tier six. Tier meaning what year you came in, what what part of the system you came in, what time frame in the in the system you came in. They had the wonderful twenty five fifty five. You could put in twenty five years or retire early at fifty five. That no longer exists. Probably going to have to do thirty three thirty five years for those in my tier for tier six. Maybe the U of T, the United Federation of Teachers, will work with the DOE to maybe work out a thirty sixty thing. We're at six years old or thirty years, whatever. Hopefully, Michelle comes way, way, way before then. But think about it. 30 plus years thinking about working. A person has 30, 40, 50 good years of working before they really want to call it quits. That sounds like a lot. But when we take it day by day, it's not as bad. We break down commitments into daily manageable tasks. When we think about our commitments in our life, when we think about our commitments to others, we have to break it down into manageable ways and proper roles and proper ways of going about it. It has to be done in manageable tasks. Merriam-Webster defines commitment as adherence to something to which one is bound by a pledge or duty. EverydayPower.com points out the definition that they hold. Commitment is the ability to stick with something long after the initial excitement is gone. We talked about inspiration in another lecture, but even once that first day of inspiration is gone, you work with the inspiration, you keep the inspiration, you need to commit and continue regardless of the first impetus and the first stimulus. Commitment is a decision to stick with a project, to stick with an idea, to stick with a relationship, or stick with a goal even when it's not easy. The phrase that pops into my head that can apply to many of us is, I'm no stranger to commitment. I further would say that this phrase also would apply to many of us. I know commitment well, and I live with it all the time. Going to grad school for a profession is a big commitment. For me, three years for occupational therapy school, for OT school, for me, was a commitment. In the first semester, I was this close, imagining me with my finger and thumb very, very, very close to each other. I was this close to pulling out. I remember sitting with my mom in the sukkah, talking about how I couldn't do it. I got to get out. I got to quit. I was so close, but was convinced to say, thank God I did. Thank God I pulled through. Many years later, in a wonderful, wonderful profession that I love. It's hard, though. Grad school can be hard. College can be hard. High school can be hard. Even grade school, elementary, middle could be hard. And, of course, post-doc work for those who do it and just the daily grind of working a job and, and managing all aspects of your life can be very difficult. But if we think about how to prioritize, which we'll talk about, God willing, we can do it. And we can make sure that we commit and we don't quit. Living a Jewish life with its holidays, its halachos, its laws, and the like is a major commitment. I think of a commitment that I recently started working on on Leismilcha in a 10-month or so program course. It is very, very difficult. Halacha for me is one of the hardest topics in Judaism. Always was, especially in high school, college, and, and YU. Very, very difficult. In the first semester, now... 
were later on. But in the first semester, I was again this, this, this close to quitting many, many, many times. My thumb and finger are very close to each other. I was very unhappy in the beginning, very angry that it was so hard for me, that it comes so hard to me. I begged, I begged, I begged to leave. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave. My wife said, no, you could do this. You could do this. She talked me through it, saying, you got to stay. You got to stay. I know it'll be good. This is great. It's going to be wonderful. Stay with it. You're learning Torah. Hashem will help you. Baruch Hashem, how right she was. Thank God I'm now halfway through. I hope to Hashem. Hashem, please. Let me through it. Let me pass it. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. But again, it's a commitment. Eight months, ten months, depending on how fast or how slow you go. Very difficult. Those who go to Yus Micha know it's three years because they, they also do many other courses, you know, in uh, pulpit speaking and, and uh, pulpit psychology and uh, stuff like that. And they also get different degrees along the way. People who go to Lander Smicha and all different types of Smicha, all different types of programs. Someone who goes for a law degree, a doctorate degree, someone who tries to be a doc, who trains to be a doctor, any of these fields. Lahavdal, there's a lot of work, a lot of commitment, a lot of time that goes in it. Anything we do also can be seen as a commitment. So many times in my own shows, in my own podcasts, especially when not seeing the results or the feedback that I'd like to see, thank, you know, I wanted to call it quits many times over the years. Thank God we're almost at three years now doing the shows, but sometimes it's hard to keep up with commitments. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with the tasks that we try to do on the side, our side projects, our side things, even the side book. Also, a lot of rejections from different publishers. It's hard. The commitment of, of going through that Hashem puts the idea, it's hard to continue. But thank God Hashem gives us a stubbornness, gives us a persistence. Another lecture we talked about a lot in another series, we talked about com- uh, the idea of persisting and keeping it through. Hashem wants us to see it through. In general, in life, we need to see it through. We need to stick with our commitments, find ways to breathe fresh air into them. Any commitment we have, we have to keep at it. We have to stay with it. We have to continue with it. Do not quit. Stay the course. Again, do not quit. Stay the course. Commitments, of course, come in many forms, shapes, and sizes. Take the idea of prioritizing spouses, kids, family. Who should come first? The question should be rhetorical. It should be obvious the answer. How do we show that they come first? Unfortunately, in the world today, there is a major problem of parallel lives, where people in a relationship are not interacting or joined together, not involved in activities together. Don't be parallel. Be joined, be in unison, have proper priorities. And a major point to take out of tonight, don't take your spouse or your relationships in general in your life, especially with Hashem, for granted, God forbid. Put in the work, put in the effort, put in the giving for it to be a beautiful relationship and for it to be a wonderful back and forth in your life. Look at what Hashem points out early on in the Torah, smack in the beginning of Bereshis and Sefer Bereshis, Parshas Bereshis, Perak Bet, Pasuk Chaf Dalet. Vayomer ha'adam zot ha'pam etzem me'atzami, ubasar mi besari, lezos yikare isha ki me'ish lekachazot. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. I didn't put it in here, but there's a famous Gemara. I don't remember where. Very famous Gemara that says, 40 days before a man is born, Hashem says, so-and-so person 
to the daughter of so-and-so. Hashem decides which man will, will, will marry which woman. Forty days before they're even born, there are people that come together. They're literally one soul. Hashem breaks apart the soul, sends them down into the world, and gives it the task of the man and the woman over the course of their life to find each other, to reunite, to become one soul. It's literally basar mi basari. It's literally my bones, my flesh. You're literally supposed to be each other's other half, especially spouses. So how could it be anyone could ever take anything for granted? How could it be anyone doesn't prioritize one another? Basar mi basari. They literally were together, announced together by Hashem and Shemaim to his court of angels, to his court of people, court of souls around him. This person for this person. How could it be otherwise? Hashem also decides as a side note, 40 days before a person was born. We just saw this, my wife and I, in our, in our Sefer, that we try to read a page or so throughout the week, a day. This person to this house, this person to this job, Hashem decides and sets aside everything before a person's born. That's why we say, Hakol bidei shamayim, chutz meyira shamayim. Everything is set by Hashem. Who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, what you're going to work at, what you're going to do. All the projects, all the ideas, Hashem knew way before you were even born. The only thing in your hand is, is your mitzvah or your averos, God forbid. That's up to you. But Hashem has everything else in the plan. The next Pasuk Barasha says, Al Kain Yazov Ish et Aviv, Viet Imo, Vidavak, Beishto. Best word in that Pasuk, Vidavak, Beishto, Vahayula Basarachad. Also amazing word in that Pasuk, Davak, Beishto, Vahayula Basarachad. It doesn't say Vidavak, Beish, it's talking to the man, Vidavak, Beishto, cling to the wife, cling to your wife, be one flesh. The Pasik points out that a man leaves his father and his mother and he clings to his wife. Isha baita. The wife becomes the house. You cling to your wife, they become one flesh. You prioritize the wife, you prioritize the spouse, you prioritize the relationship, and of course, you prioritize Hashem. When a man leaves his parents' home, he becomes one person with his wife. He leaves everything behind, everything behind, and is one with her. She is and must become his priority. Everything else is left behind. She is the most important. Everything he does directly affects her. He must stick with her, must do everything for her. When he takes action, he must think how it will affect her. For example, a personal example from my own life, I will be the first to admit I am not a morning person. I hate mornings. Even after all these years, if I come off as cranky and grumpy, it will definitely rub off on my wife. It'll definitely affect her. It will definitely ruin her day. I personally have to make sure, to make sure to work on being better in the mornings, to positively affect all of our days. If I'm cranky, then my wife is cranky, then my oldest is cranky, then my middle is cranky, then my youngest is cranky, everyone's cranky, everyone's going to have a terrible day. If you cling to one another, you cling to the people in your life, the relationships in your wife, in your life, not just the wife, not just the husband. You understand that everyone is in it. Whoever's around you will be affected. All your relationships understand you can be the impetus of everyone around you. Think about what you do. Think about how it affects your spouse, your kids, or the others around you. For example, if you go to a kiddish for an hour. While the spouse is beside herself with the screaming kids, 
even if you bring home food for them, which is like a which is like a um, a chiddush for many people. Of course, you should bring home food for your wife for your kids. Why would you not? You get to go to a kiddush and lottie die yourself for an hour, but you bring nothing for anyone else. What kind of craziness is that? It shouldn't even be a havamina. Of course, you bring home food for your wife, for your kids. I'm telling that as a personal example. Go to a kiddush, bring home stuff for everybody. That's beside the point. For sure, bring that stuff. But if there's home with the screaming kids, even if you bring home the food, it will not help. That time was not properly spent. Do you think they wanted you at the kiddush or do you think they needed you home with the screaming children? If you're super obsessed with sports, what is the priority? Do you go to the friend and watch the game for four hours while leaving the spouse alone the whole time to take care of everything else? Is that true vidavak piishto? And if you do have an agreement with your wife, bless your soul if you do, but if you do have that agreement somehow getting off scot-free for four hours... You have an agreement, let's say you have an agreement about going off to the games or something similar. Ask in advance, what can I do for you to make things easier later? Perhaps get the kids in pajamas. Perhaps get the kids in bed. Perhaps do the laundry. Perhaps do the dishes. So maybe you get to go off scot-free to watch your game. Why can't she get scot-free to watch her thing or to read her book or to do whatever she wants why should you get to go excuse me why should you get to go off while she doesn't make sure to do what you can to make life easier for those around you if you're dorming with a friend you're dorming with other people you're involved with other people what can i do to make things easier i understand that we me and my best friend for example charlie has a best friend who he shares an apartment with before they found their spouses I don't want to leave all the stuff. He doesn't want to leave all the stuff for Charlie. Why should Charlie have to do all the dishes and all the floor? That's not fair. You should figure out a way that it could be done together. You figure out how to help those around you, especially spouses, especially those that are involved in your life. Side point. It doesn't necessarily mean that the wife, the, the, the girl, has to be the cook in the family. Men feel free to cook. Or sign up. If I get enough interest, I will introduce you to my Cook Like a Man series where I tell you how I do the cooking all week, every week, and for Shabbos, how I do it throughout the week, and how I do it for Shabbos, and I'm happy to do so. I had no training. It was all on-the-job training. Never stepped foot in a kitchen before marriage, but now, thank God, cook all the time, and it's wonderful. The dishes are another story, not so much fun, but at least the cooking, we could tell you how to do so. It's not so bad. One of the best things to realize is what we can do for those around us. And for sure, what we can do for a spouse. Make sure to give a meaningful comment or a few each day to the spouse or to those around you. Wow, you did such a great job getting the kids ready. It really helped me. Another thing to realize is not to put everything on the spouse, not to put everything on the roommate, not to put any, everything on the other family that's in your house. Not to expect all roles to fall on the spouse, to fall on the other family member, to fall on the friend or whoever is with you in your house. In fact, I myself personally try to roll, roll reverse, try to reverse roll our house and try to do a lot of things around the house, including cooking, dishes, laundry, and more. In addition, make sure to give the spouse what they really want or what they really need, not what you think they want or need. For instance, 
If they really want you to help out and clean around the house, and instead your definition, your suggestion, and your interpretation is to buy them a Roomba vacuum, that is not the point. You see they're exhausted, you see they're tired, your solution is to buy them a Roomba vacuum, is that for yourself or is that for them? They really want you to help and instead you're getting them a robot, you're substituting the robot for what you should do instead, you're missing the point. If you waste an hour finding and spending a ton of money on flowers when really the spouse would have been much more happy or much more preferred you spend that hour with them at home helping with the dishes, you're really missing the point. Always keep others on the mind. Always keep the spouse on the mind. Always think what he or she would want from you in how to spend time and how to take care of them. Always prioritize those around you how best to spend the most and proper time with those people in your life. Think about commitments. Think about pulling through. Think about how you're using your time. Think about what is really important. Think about what is also worth fighting about, what is worth really disagreeing about or giving other people a hard time about. I remember once reading, maybe on H.com, that the phrase in your mind should be with dealing with a spouse, with dealing with others, with dealing with disagreements that may pop up. Is this worth losing your shalom bias about? Is it worth it to lose the peace of the home over this? Is this really worth it? Is that really worth it? Is that really, really worth it? For example, is it really such a big deal to change into Shabbos shoes to say Mazel Tov at a Simcha if your spouse asks, is that worth a fight? Is that worth a disagreement? I don't think so. Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky Zatzal would say, and he has amazing, amazing books, amazing amount of a book of his books but each book is a gem and in this gem growing each day there's a quote which has a prescription for marriage but it works for relationships in general the secret of peace in the home is the awareness that husband and wife are not two distinct individuals living in a contractual relationship but are one unit if they love each other they are also loving themselves. If they respect each other, they are also respecting themselves. Rabbi Razer points out in his Sefer Shalom Rav, a wonderful, wonderful Sefer. So far, excuse me, it's on Bereshus and Shemos. Hopefully there's on the other three Sefers of the Torah. And this comes from this past week's Parsha. Mamash Hashkacha, we're still on the Parsha from last week. They say Tuesday or Wednesday we turn to the Parsha of the coming week. But in this past week's Parsha, he points out, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik draws a parallel between the Mishkan and our own homes by focusing on the vessels described in the Parsha. As a side note, the Mishkan was a place to let Hashem in. The Pasuk says, what does the Pasuk say? Ve'asuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham. Everyone, a lot of commentators point out that there's a different verbiage. There's a different aspect. One is plural, one is singular. Why? Hashem says the whole Bnei Yisrael needs to open up a place in their heart to let Hashem in. Singularly, within each of our souls, within each of our hearts, we have to let Hashem in. Each of us are supposed to be a mikdash ma'at. And when we're together with a spouse, a family, the house 
has to be a Mikdash Ma'at. We need to let Hashem in. The Mikdash was a place to let Hashem in. Of course, our homes, we have to let Hashem in as well. I don't remember where I heard it, but the Hebrew words for man and woman are Ish and Isha. And they're different by two letters. What's the difference between Ish and Isha? The He and the Yud in, some, in how we conjugate it and how we spell it, they can be different by two letters, that of the Yud and the He. When Hashem is in the home, the, the Ka is there. The Yud and the He, when spelled out, Hashem is there. The two are connected. Hashem is present. The Yud and the He are with the man and the woman, are with the relationship of the Ish and the Isha. But what happens, God forbid, if Hashem is not allowed in? What happens, God forbid, if Hashem is taken out? The Yud and the He are taken out. All that's left from Ish and Isha, you take out the Yud, you take out the, the He, all that's left is Ish, the Aleph and the Shin, the Ish of fire. Fire is strife. Fire is not being able to be one with one another in a good harmonious relationship, not a good foundation for a relationship, not a good relationship. You let Hashem in, there's wonderful harmony, there's wonderful beautifulness in the home. God forbid Hashem is not allowed in. God forbid there's not good shalom bias. There's only ish, fire, strife, arguing. And that's something that needs to be avoided. Rav Salvechik continues to explain that the vessels for the Mishkan were basic elements in the home. Like the table, the shulchan, the lamp, the menorah, and the chair, the aron, for Hashem, the chair of Hashem. We talk about the kiseh hakavod. The golden mizbeach and the offerings... What can those be considered in our own house? It's what we do in the house that comes later. We should bring Hashem into our homes, using these items such as a table to serve guests, a bed to house guests, non-corona times, the lamp to learn and study Torah. Further, it's pointed out in Shalom Rav and Rabbi Razner Sefer, it may be said that the Aron can symbolize Torah, which should be the foundation for the couple and a foundation in any life in any home. The menorah may symbolize shalom bayis, peace in the home, represented by the Shabbos candles. When my life light, when my wife lights, excuse me, I can't explain it. I was trying to think how to write it, how to depict it. It's like an aura. I feel a metaphysical aura, almost like this spiritual blue light, like shooting through the house, enveloping the house, going through the whole house. A metaphysical feeling permeating the house. That's what the lights should do for us. The shulchan represents hosting guests, singing, seeing divrei Torah, and learning. The kiyor, washing, represents purity used for washing hands for the meal. The mizbeach may symbolize sacrifices, which is the sacrifices a couple needs to make for one another a life, and a person needs to make for other people in life, and on a continual basis, which draw them closer to one another, and which brings a person to do good and better for other people in the world. A key to a good home may be where there is a home full of Torah, mitzvahs, and chesed, where it is shared by both spouses who prioritize to do things together, who are committed together, committed to the family, committed to the Jewish people, committed to the world, and to not, God forbid, lead separate parallel existences. H.com points out with author Karen Wolfer Rappaport, many married couples lead parallel lives, God forbid. 
When one does whatever it takes to spend the least time or to purposely lessen time with a spouse, you are leading parallel lives. Oftentimes, you're not conscious of this process, but the impact is very real. When you are involved in your own endeavors, concerns, friends, even wishes and dreams at the exclusion of your spouse, at the exclusion of people in your life, you're leading a parallel life. It doesn't have to look or sound nasty. It can be quiet, subtle, insidious, but before you know it, you begin to understand you're going it alone in what should be a partnership. In a parallel life scenario, there's very little opportunity to give, to appreciate, to join, or to love. Physically, you live together under the same roof, but emotionally, you're miles apart. In Boratius, we have the description of Adam and Chava, the first man and woman. They came into being. They were created as a single person in an apparently unified state. It's said that Adam and Chava were back-to-back at that point. But then Hashem blesses the back-to-back Adam and Chava to be fruitful and multiply because it's not good for man to be alone. Lo tov lehiyot levad. In order for them to follow this commandment, they are then separated. So Adam and Chava then have a choice. They could remain back-to-back as now separate entities, or they could turn around and relate face-to-face, panim upon him, like the Kruvim talked about in the Parsha. Why were the Kruvim pointed one to each other when there was a harmonious relationship between us and the Hashem? But God forbid if Hashem was upset, they say that the Kruvim did not look at each other. They turned away back-to-back. We need to be face-to-face. We all confront the same choice as did Adam and Chav in our own relationships. Do we remain back-to-back, living separate, parallel lives? Or do we relate to each other face-to-face, honestly, consciously informed in a proper way? Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg explains that a back-to-back relationship is one in which each partner is involved in fulfilling their own interests. In contrast, a face-to-face relationship, panim upon him, is where each partner acknowledges and respects each other's individual needs. Rabbi Ginsberg further points to the fact that while people's backs are similar to each other, the face is a unique part of every single person. Therefore, relating in a back-to-back fashion indicates a lack of interest in the uniqueness of the other, whereas a face-to-face relationship expresses each partner's innermost considerations. When we are back-to-back, it's possible to cover the basics in the relationship. The food can be bought, chores can be delegated, diapers can be changed. Doesn't mean we're connecting emotionally. Doesn't mean we see each other. You can be busy with the daily grind, avoid facing the effect of life. That's the not, that is not the state of oneness that the Jewish marriage aspires to. How do you create authentic relationships, mature relationships, face-to-face is getting to know people, getting to know your other half. Your spouse is supposed to be your other half, separated before birth, brought together in marriage in unison, one unit, one person, knowing their likes and dislikes, knowing the precious moments in their lives, their favorite composer, the most traumatic event that happened in sixth grade, everything about them. It has meaning. It is very personal. Turn to the spouse when they turn to you. Look in their eyes when they talk to you. It doesn't relate just to spouses, but when you're talking to people, look at their eyes. Talk to them. Don't be involved in other things, your phone, and not even half-heartedly listening. Listen to your partner's longings and goals. Listen to your friends when they're talking to you. Make people understand to feel understood. Appreciate people, help them attain yearnings, cultivate gratitude for unique human beings that are around us. Nurture your affection and admiration by 
reminding yourself why you are in such a state. The more you feel seen in a relationship, the more you will as well. Aish points out from Rabbi Bienenfeld that there is good advice in the research of John Gottesman, Dr. John Gottesman, an expert marital therapist and author of the best-selling book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Gottesman speaks of the importance of what he calls a love map, a knowledge of the spouse replete with information about who they are and what makes them tick. When difficulties arise between spouses, and they most certainly will, it's our knowledge that helps us weather the storm. Can you articulate the personal ambitions, the professional ambitions, what they find meaningful or stressful or pet peeves, favorite activities or worst fears? If money is not an object, where would they live? How would they spend their time? I know how I can answer that question. I would live in Israel and I would do radio podcasts all day, maybe consult for OT. Seeking out answers to questions is important to get the details to transform relationships around us to a passive state of being into an active pursuit of understanding and admiring those around you. Possessing a detailed knowledge of the spouse and others is the difference between leading parallel lives in a shared space and living a unified life joined by deep knowledge that we all have. If love is something that you fall into, like all the Hallmark movies, you could just as easily fall out. But if it's something that is intentionally crafted, strengthened, and understood to work at it and to fortify it, then it is something that is indeed wonderful. Knowledge is indeed power. Not the power to exploit or manipulate, God forbid, but the power to fuel a relationship into the future. To me, for a relationship to have the best effect, there has to be constant time together. Every single day. That means prioritizing to spend every day with the other person something to do every day as much as possible. This applies on whatever works for you, whether it be watching something together every day, for example, a shear or a lecture or inspiring talk, listening to something together every day, for example, a podcast, a shear, reading something together every day, for example, a Torah book, like a page per day or a parenting book page per day or uh, an inspiring book to, to read and look up to every day, or just spending time doing something together every day. Make a fun date night, event, or ideas with themes, such as painting together, or a puzzle task together, or a board game together, reading next to one another, etc. Take time to sing together with your wife and family, especially on Shabbos, the Zmiros of the Three Meals, and after Shabbos. For example, in our house, we break out the guitar often. I take out my guitar in the winter months for the kids, and I play a musical Havdalah and songs for bed while for my wife and the kids. Play music together if you both play an instrument, do things together, share tasks and activities in the leisure or play realm of the main areas of occupation that we talk about and occupational therapy land and OT land every day. But the person must be put first must be prioritized every single day. It gives both yourself and your spouse something to look forward to each day, no matter how stressful things are that day, that you know it's amazing that you can know that you'll have something to look forward to. You'll have that time to sit down together, relax, and share it together. Actually, for me, my favorite time of the entire week is on Friday night when the kids are sleeping and my wife and I read our Jewish novels next to each other on the big comfy couch. That is my favorite time of the entire, entire week. 
I love that time. It's the zenith of the entire week. My kids are sleeping. My wife and I sit down next to each other. We read our Jewish novels. Whatever novels I buy and get that week, we have a whole mini library upstairs and downstairs. We read those Jewish novels next to each other on that big comfy couch with the special Shabbos snacks of the pomegranate seeds and our sour sticks. Often my wife and I swap books and read the same book one after another and have a kind of a Jewish novel book club to discuss which characters were the favorite, what part of the story we're up to, what we really liked or not. Reading together on Shabbos for me is the zenith of the entire week. No one says you can't have your own likes and your own interests, but it should not be to the exclusion or to the detriment of your spouse or spending time with your spouse or prioritizing time with your spouse. Do your own interest on your own time when you're not otherwise spending time with the spouse or the kids. If I want to do something I know it would bore my wife, I wait until she's busy with something else or sleeping. I believe Ned would ever want to take away from the time we spend together on date night time. Here are some examples to implement it with a few that I myself have tried to do over the years, sometimes in different manners to prioritize and properly implement commitment priority. I'd love to talk to my friend when he calls at 5.30, but the kids are crazy and my wife needs help, so I'll call him back, Blinetter, when she naps at 9.45. I'd love to watch that documentary right now, but my kids need me, so I'll watch it when they're asleep, Blinetter. I would love to record at 7 p.m. every single day, but it's my priority to first hang out with my wife, so I'll record at 10 when she's napping. I'd love to play guitar every single day of every single week of the year at 7 p.m., but I'll bleed Ned to play Motsi Shabbos for the family instead by bedtime. I'd love to watch the funny cat video my friend sent me now, but it's better to first spend time doing something together that she'll enjoy also. So I'll watch my video later, Blee Nedder, when she falls asleep. Marriage and children are some of the biggest commitments of our life, and relationships are like flowers. Without putting in the effort and the time with the right priority and focus, God forbid they will wilt and die. This applies to all relationships, not just marriage. We need to spend time with our kids every day, playing with them, being silly with them, reading with them. Further, we must check in with our friends and with our family, make sure they're doing okay, as well as with extended friends and the like, but not by taking away time from our own spouses and kids. And of course, we must, must, must make sure to nurture our relationship to Hashem every single day, talking to Hashem, davening to Hashem, working out what we can do to further our Yiddishkeit, to further our Torah, our mitzvahs, and our chesed. Hashem wants us to have a relationship with Him. It's okay to get upset, to get angry. If it wasn't a relationship, we, we couldn't have such feelings. We couldn't work through such feelings. Hashem is our Father. It, we're not looking at Hashem as a dictator, God forbid. We're looking at Him as a loving Father. It's okay to think. It's okay to talk. It's okay to, to talk. Many times I'm walking around, if I'm angry or upset, or I'm, I'm lost at the moment of the day, I'll talk to Hashem. Maybe it looks a little crazy to the passerby, but whatever. We're able to talk to Hashem, interact with Hashem, have great conversations with Hashem. We say, Hashem, open my mouth so I could talk to you. It's a conversation, but it must be prioritized. If I want to have a good conversation with my friend, I'll call once my wife is asleep. In fact, I've had some great conversations over the past few months for an hour or two, but after everyone was asleep. Also, a major point to realize is that the commitments, quote-unquote commitments in our life, a lot of them are not essential. 
a lot of them are not really real. If you really would think about it, you really would really think about it. Is your fantasy football team really so important? Is your pool game club or whatever really so important? Is it really what is more important? Understand what is really truly fundamentally important. Shia Ostroff points out on OU.org that there's a major problem with the explosion of technology and information overload in today's Western society. The contemporary world we live in is saturated with what a close friend of Shia, of the author, has coined as weapons of mass distraction. WMDs, weapons of mass distraction. There's hardly a moment, and we talked about this a lot in the preoccupations here, there's hardly a moment when we do not feel pulled in countless directions by the iPhones, by professional commitments, by interests and hobbies, social networks, and the latest headlines. While many of these commitments and concerns are legitimate aspects of the life, the overall effect creates an ongoing sense of tension that can easily become impatience, agitation, anxiety, worry, and insecurity. Under these conditions, we never really feel settled or peaceful within ourselves. Yet we have come to consider this unsettled state of mind normal. We tend to worry about job security, Facebook friends maintaining a workout schedule, the sense that life is slipping by if we don't keep up, and countless other concerns that pervade our everyday thoughts and feelings. This becomes our default, and many of us are unaware that life can be any different. The author explains the answer to this problem is menuchat nefesh and menuchat goof I would say. Menuchat nefesh is a state of mind that empowers us to develop relationships that are deeply meaningful, deeply fulfilling, and deeply prioritized. Menuchat nefesh can literally be translated as a tranquil soul, but it's no single word or concept that can really capture the complexity and depth of its meaning. When we cultivate menuchat nefesh in our lives, by achieving a state of mind that is focused, clear, calm, decisive, and very secure, the opposite of fragmentation, that's how we can get it when we prioritize and focus on what we really need to do with our time, who we really need to spend time with, what we really need to do with our days. Keeping a calm, clear-faced mind means to focus and prioritize who and what is most important. Hashem, the spouse and the kids, then the job, the family, and other commitments. But first and foremost, after davening and, and praying, cultivating your relationship with Hashem, of course, is your spouse, and then the kids, and then the rest. Then everything can fall into order, realizing what is truly, really most important as your commitments. H.com points out in a recent article that came out from Todd Jacobs and Dr. Peter Lin, a marriage should first be defined, and this applies to relationships in general, Jewish mystical sources define marriage as a unique coming together of two people, each of whom have committed to do everything possible they can do to give to that other person the life they want to and deserve to have. Two individuals who oftentimes are, are so, so, so different can come together with a shared set of ideals and commitment to build something together that transcends the two of them. The unity they achieve can, through thick and thin, offer a lifetime of support, comfort, friendship, and well-being. The Torah view of marriage is that rather than focusing on what I can get, a strange coincidence that the Hebrew word for divorce is the same, get, we should never know from such things, a marriage largely should be defined by what I can give. Marriages don't just happen. They have to be built and they have to be cultivated every single day. And understand you love where you give. In reality, our sages teach us that we love where we give. The more I give, the more of myself I invest into the other, 
the more I expand myself and find myself there. In that process, my healthy love of self expands to include the other and creates real oneness. It is the complete opposite of taking, demanding, expecting. If you really want to love your spouse, you really want to love people, give and give and give some more. Rabbi Blach points out one of my favorite quotes from H.com, an important key point to remember, key idea, key quote to think in your entire life. Rabbi Eliyahu Eliezer Dessler, a famous rabbi, Talmudic scholar, and Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, noted that the striking truth that love increases by giving, the more we give, the more we love. The number one quote to remember for life, the more we give, the more we love. That explains the striking anomaly that parents normally love their children more deeply than their offspring can ever love them. Not in spite of the fact that parents have done more for their children than the reverse, but precisely because of it. And that is the major thing to remember. Realize that love isn't a noun, it's a verb. To give, to give, and to give again. I'm in love is a passive thing. But I love you, using the term, is active. The Hebrew word for love, another one of my favorite things to think about. What's the Hebrew word for love? Ahava. What is the shoresh? What is the root? What is the source of Ahava? And I believe this is pointed out by Rabbi Dessler also in his Strive for Truth, Mechta Mela Eliyahu, a beautiful, wonderful Muslim work. The root for Ahava is Hav, Hey Bet, which is its two-letter root, which is the word Hav, which is to give, preceded by the letter Aleph, Ahav, I will give. Again, Ahava is... The root of Ahava is Hav, which is preceded by the Aleph, which is I, the singular. Ahav, I will give. True love is far more than emotion. Loving is doing. Loving is giving. It's acting out of concern for another's well-being. It's an affirmation of our willingness to give. And realize the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Elie Wiesel captured a profound truth. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Antonyms help us better understand the real meanings of word. We've established that love is a verb, an idea that needs to turn feelings into action. You take it a step further and you understand the love's greatest enemy. Marriages are most often destroyed by acts of war between partners. But like plants that need constant watering, marriages wither, and this applies to relationships too. You don't call your friend, it's going to fall off the face of the earth. God forbid you don't talk to Hashem, you don't have a relationship with Hashem, God forbid it's going to wither. And you're going to lose out much more. Marriages, for sure, wither from lack of the basic attention human beings require to combat the fearful state of solitude. That's why there's no such thing as falling out of love. What a craziness that secular society has brought upon us. You fall out of caring and sharing. You fall out of communicating. You fall out of connecting. You fall out of recognizing the importance of taking the time to appreciate moments we have together. We only have 120 years. doesn't matter how much you love sports, how much you love fantasy football, which I never understood to begin with because I'm not a sports person. Lahavdil. But all these other things don't matter. How much time do you have in a day? If you and your spouse work and you take care of kids and you have all these commitments, you finally have some time to sit down. Those moments are precious. Why let them waste? Why let them go away? So you have time. The kids are in bed and it's finally 7, 8. 
And, you know, you're going to conk out at 11. You have three hours of a wonderful date time you can use with the spouse. You have three hours you could use to connect with your friend if you're, if you're still searching or if you're in a different point of your life. Those are solid hours. Those are solid time to use. Amazing time to, to, to plant and to do something with. Marriages need that constant watering like a plant. They need the constant attention. They need it to be made happen every single day. Love begins with an inspiration, begins with such a feeling, but it thrives with perseverance. We talked about that a lot in another sheer. Like in any important project, it can't be taken for granted. It requires constant work, constant effort. And in a real relationship, it shouldn't have to feel like work. It should feel like a wonderful putting in of your effort, of your time, of your giving, where you love to give, and it's your greatest pleasure to give. The greatest enemy is indifference. It doesn't go from love to hate. It can go from love to boredom, God forbid, from love to silence, God forbid, from love to neglect, God forbid, and from love to lack of attention, God forbid. You also have to realize, H points out, you have to make the love unconditional. The sages offer a profound insight in Ethics of the Fathers, Pekayavos, one of the shows I do, where kol ahava shetaloya b'davar batal davar batal ahava v'she'eno taloya b'davar eno batela l'olam. The Eza Eza Hava Shaina Toloya Bedavar Zu Ahava Shell David Ve Yahonatan Vishatoloya Bedavar Zu Ahava Shell Amnon Vitamar. I'm loosely quoting by heart. But basically there's a love that's conditional and a love that's unconditional. Unconditional love will never be broken. It's not dependent on anything. And if it doesn't depend on anything, it's there forever. If it depends on something, the looks, the money, if that's gone, the relationship is gone. The example they give is a very intense story. I'm not going to go into it, but suffice it to say it involved of its children and did not end well. But the amazing example of true love, true friendship of David and Yehonasan could talk about that relationship. Amazing friendship for hours. Suffice to say that David and Yehonasan were no greater natural enemies than them too, as Art School points out in their notes. But instead, Yehonasan saves David's life on at least one, if not more, occasions to the detriment and to the anger of his own dad. You know, it was an amazing, amazing relationship. It was not conditional. And it was there forever. And then one of the saddest prakim we read on Rosh Chodesh or Machar Chodesh, how they make this pact and they'll take care of each other's families. Of course, Shaul and his, and his son soon after that parak die. And it's a very, very sad, tragic ending. But in general, while they were, to, while they were alive, they had such a burning love of a beautiful friendship. Temporary love is love that is based on a feature of the beloved. He's rich. In time, he may lose his wealth. He is strong. In time, he may lose his strength. He's handsome. In time, he'll lose that. True love needs to build a foundation of permanence on the entire person, not on any conditional factor. You can love a person's goodness, and that's inherent to the person, not their looks, not the externals, not the superficialities. We, under, we need to understand the key essence of what it means to be involved in a commitment, what it means to properly work on relationship with spouses, friends, and families, and of course, our relationship with Hashem. Jews for Judaism point out on their website an amazing organization that basically fights the other organization, which does terrible, terrible things, and this organization strengthens and preserves Jewish identity, responding to religious coercion, promoting critical thinking skills, and providing spiritual guidance and support. Wonderful organization, JewsforJudaism.org. But they have this amazing quote that fits right in with us. As far as slogans go to the Oakland Raider NFL franchise, they had it right. They marketed their team to the word with the catchphrase commitment to excellence. 
by and large, the Al Davis own club of the 70s and 80s lived up to that model. Of course, commitment to excellence is a concept not restricted to professional sports. It's a mantra one should intone when setting out to accomplish anything in life. Imperative in Jewish living. Excuse me. For starters, commitment means loyal devotion to the cause of upholding unique legacy to the world. Legend has it when the Torah was revealed at Har Sinai over 3,000 years ago, it was offered to the other nations of the world. The Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Ishmaelites, and others were given the opportunity to accept this divinely inspired system of living. But each of the nations asked what was written in the do- document, and they couldn't do it. This one didn't want to give up theft. This one didn't want to give up bloodshed. This one didn't want to give up their immoral lifestyle. Only the Jews were able to take the plunge, and they decided to take the Torah. And they said, Na'asev and Ishmael, we will do before we will hear. We will take care of it before knowing anything that's written in the Torah, which is phenomenal just to think about. The variations to the legend and diverse explanations how the commentators pointed out, but basically the, the idea was that, that uh, they were given it and they were shown what was going to happen and they took it upon it anyway. But in, in general, a person should understand that you need to have a commitment. You need to be involved and understand to take something upon yourself, even if there's going to be difficult decisions or compromises. Commitment can spawn ambivalence because of its attendant assumptions. Some may assume that a commitment at work means long hours and greater productivity. Others, it may mean self-sacrifice for the sake of the team. But in marriage, commitment implies changing from the individual I to the collective I. In other words, making decisions with another person in mind. Talmudic passage teaches that couples should strive to achieve the domestic tranquility symbolized by the dove. Why the dove? The dove keeps its partner for life. Also, a dove is as comfortable in the heavens as it is on a tree limb. The message is that, firstly, you need to stay together always. In the throwaway society that we unfortunately live in today, there have been conditioned to think, why fix it when you could buy a newer one cheaper? The logic follows that, God forbid, it could apply from automobiles to computers and clock radios. Why not to marriages and relationships? God forbid. Indeed, many liberal-minded mental health professionals counsel married couples in precisely this way. And mind you, that's not counseling. That's destructive, terrible, quote-unquote, advice. Not even advice. Destructive, terrible words. Growing apart, don't see eye-to-eye, not getting enough out of the relationship. Why go through any trouble of working it out? This life is so short. Let's just get someone else. God forbid. Remember the dove. Remember our commitments. Check to see if we're honoring our side of the deal. Maybe we need to work on ourselves before, God forbid, even thinking about having a hava, mean a God forbid, of going anywhere. You should be in it for life until 120, unless Mashiach comes first. Judaism believes in the sanctity of the relationship, properly nurturing it every single day. The dove is as comfortable on the terra firma as in the skies. That means one should strive to achieve a beautiful level of connection and relationship and in their marriage. To love one's spouse, it doesn't matter who's giving and who's receiving. When both are content with the scenario, there's no such thing as she did this or I'll do that. It's not tit for tat. It's not conditional. It's not 50-50. It's 100-100. Giving because giving is the root of love. Giving is hav. Ah-hav. Aleph-hav. I give, therefore I am, therefore I'm in a relationship. I give and I give and I give. You have to be in it to win it the whole time. The story is told of a great sage who I believe was Rabbi Arya Levine, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, who lived in Israel during the first half of the previous century. He paid a visit with his wife to the podiatrist who warmly greeted the couple as they entered the office. The doctor asked the rabbi what seemed to be the problem. 
Without pretentiousness, without hesitation, the venerable sage announced, my wife's foot is hurting us. What a profound statement. Again, my wife's foot is hurting us. Beautiful. Empathy. How many of us express ourselves in daily life with this type of commitment, with this type of connection, with this type of concern for our spouses or anyone around us? Next time you ponder any commitment, climb up that mental diving board with courage and conviction. Yes, commitments contain unknowns and some warn of possible failure. It's common for people to neither jump nor climb back down the ladder, but rather to stay stuck at the end of the board. Immobilizing pros, cons, obstacles, and worries. In that state of mind, the obstacles begin to rule, obscuring the vision, blunting motivation. But life is too short to indulge in what-ifs. At that moment, at the eminent, at the, as the eminent Civil War poet once said, of all things said of mouth and pen, the saddest indeed are it might have been. If you can incorporate the idea of what it really means to commit, to never quit, to make sure to incorporate how to give and prioritize with our spouses, our kids, Hashem, and people in general, figure out how to live out each day, we could have a real recipe of wonderful interactions and relationships, which could really bring peace to everybody. And I want to show you some other sources in our time together. I know we're going a little late. I appreciate it. But I want to show you some fascinating sources that we could point out. In Vayikra itself, Hashem talks about the Shabbos itself. If you ever think about how Shabbos comes about every seventh day, no matter what is going on in your life, it is a commitment every single week for all time. Gemar Salta points out the commitment we have to the Torah. You have to understand, to get that eternal reward, we have to be involved in the Torah, mitzvahs and chesed. Baba Metzia points out, you cannot make a commitment you have no intention of fulfilling, God forbid. Rav Kahana made a commitment in good faith, and he reneged due to changed circumstances. We cannot do that. We have to understand one of our points to carry over. We're not strangers to commitment, especially in the Judaic lifestyle. Make sure to rise up. Own up to commitments. Fulfill them right. If you can't do it the whole way, don't do it at all. If you can't do it the whole way, the right way, don't do it. Baba Mitzia points out, if someone reneges on his commitment, the sages are displeased with him. It is not good. It's acting in bad faith. Torah Orach points out in Shamos, that Moshe confirmed to Hashem that, Hashem that the people made their commitment, Na'asev Inishma, everything Hashem said we would do. What a wonderful thing to do before even thinking. Na'asev Inishma, Na'asev Inishma, we will do and then we will hear. Torah points out in Devarim, when they took to have Moshe's intermediary promise obedience to whatever he said in the name Hashem, they had the commitment for the long haul. And that's another point. Live up to our credo as a people when we first got the Torah. Na'asevinishma. First do, then talk, then hear, then think about it later. Commit to do and worry about the details later, especially when asked by a spouse or asked by a friend or someone close to take care of something. Chaskuni points out in Devarim, when it says Asher Bana, the Kohen goes through all the people who are exempt from fighting in the war, anyone who got married, anyone who planted a vineyard, anyone who built a house, among others. The Torah teaches the correct order in which men must approach the subject of marriage. First, they make a commitment to the woman. Then they find the place to live. Then they establish the economic base, such as planting the vineyard, having a job. You complete the wedding ceremonies after that. And then it talks about how they're let out of the war so that they could properly be with their bride and their house and their vineyard, whatever. But the idea is to fulfill your commitments in the right way, to do things in the proper order. First, take care of your spouse, then your kids, then yourself. Order your days and your life in the right way, attacking one thing at a time in the proper manner. First, your wife, then your kids, then yourself. Feed your wife first, then your kids, then you could sit down.
For example, Kaliyasha points out if someone behaves righteously, fears Hashem, if he clings to him every single day with the proper commitment to Torah, mitzvahs, and good deeds, all of his days will be with splendor and with majesty and with wonderful crownship. Or Achaim points out in Bereshis, the Jewish people ensured they wouldn't go back on their commitment to observe the Torah. God made sure to go that they would have the right way as well. And the Masanisim points out in Magen and the Haggadah that Hashem made clear to the whole world that He was the God. He performed everything because He was committed to Israel and Israel then became committed to Him. Sharamuna points out in Judaism, faith is not the abstract feeling but a level of stability and wavering commitment, faithfulness to do. And the major themes in modern philosophies point out your life needs to demand commitment into action, not just thinking about it, but actually acting with further action. Not faith, but actual action. Without action, nothing's happening. Even the Machser points out in Rosh Hashanah that we declare a commitment to Hashem. We know that it's not forced upon us, but instead, really, on the contrary, we love it, we cherish it, we delight, and we're pleasant, we're happy to do these things. The Shalhevet Shalomunah points out, we withstand the evil attractions, we serve Hashem with great joy, we fulfill our commitment to Him, and we try to do what we can to be at Sadiq. And Midavid Ve'ad L'Churban points out we must grow in our commitment to Hashem and to Torah and never be satisfied with maintaining the status quo. We need to live up to our commitments to Hashem and to others as He does for us and make sure to put commitment into action as relationships and commitments need tending to on a constant basis. And from David to Destruction also points out that the relationship with Hashem is not just obedience. A relationship as opposed to compliance with a loan payment is meaningless without full commitment. Our commitment is compared in Shir Hashir to a relationship between spouses. Any reasonable spouse finds it completely unacceptable for his or her partner to be less than completely devoted to the marriage. Partial devotion is equivalent to a complete lack of devotion. Hashem expects unwavering commitment just as a spouse demands and deserves unconditional loyalty. And that's another point. We must be completely devoted to Hashem and to our spouse's full throttle ahead. We must be our best selves, giving our time, energy, attention, resources, and shared time with our spouses and with Hashem, living a life the right Torah way. From David to Destruction also points out, we need to have high ambitions. Elisha asked Eliyahu when he was going up in a fiery, fiery chariot, I want to be twice as great as you. We should be inspired to also make grand requests and to live up to grand requests in our own lives, to double our commitment to Judaism, to our impact on the communities, to our impact to the world, and our impact on our spouses and the people in our life. And Midavadad Chorban also points out we should have the message that we need to maintain high standards and remain steadfast in commitment into Torah. Otherwise, we could slip, God forbid. So we should have grand ideas of what our commitments can look like and try as hard as we can to fulfill and emulate that ideal, especially in our relationships with Hashem and with our spouses. Gray Matter points out that it's important to act beyond the letter of the law. The Gemara points out in Brachos that Hashem prays that people should act lifnei mishurat hadin. Rav Wurzberger points out that Rav Salvechik once said, Rav Yosef Dov Salvechik, Halacha is not a ceiling but a floor. We need to go from there much more above and beyond. Lifnei Mishura Sadin, expression of kindness in our legal framework, categorizes our true ideal. And that's another point. We must go above and beyond for our relationships, for our commitments, for our spouses and Hashem. The standard itself is not good enough, is not gold enough, is not the ideal. Go further than required by being truly kind and generous and chesed-oriented for others, especially the spouse, and of course for Hashem. 
Gray Matter points out that we, we should see how to have the positive, good influences around us. Seeing a joyous family experience a peak Torah event like a Yom Tov meal motivates many to increase their level of commitment. Penina Halacha points out, sanctify the days. Think about Yom Tov and Shabbos, study Torah, rejoice in the festival, understand how he took us, he sanctifies, brought us, mits us, and brought us close. If we improve ourselves, perfect our character, purify our heart, strengthen our commitment to Torah, mits us, we can reveal our vital mission. Redeeming Relevance points out that Yehuda was a great example. Also, he stood up, he withstood the test, he took responsibility for Binyamin when confronting Yosef. He showed a high level of credibility in his commitment as well. The Ayod Halachayot Achshaviyot points out regarding the mitzvah of Shabbos lights, like we pointed out earlier, has wide dissemination. The mitzvah itself has become a great neshek and inspiring great commitment to Torah observance. And Penin also points out, that you, a person is supposed to visit the rabbi throughout the year, especially on the three pilgrimage festivals, in order to strengthen his connection to the rabbi and strengthen his commitment to the Torah and mitzvahs. And that's another point to carry over. Make sure to surround yourself with positive role models, examples of good relationships and good sticking to commitment. Find loving couples who have the gold standard, a Talmud Chacham who adheres to a beautiful Torah study regimen, seeing what a beautiful Yom Tov or Shabbos meal really looks like. Pinin Alacha points out also, the greater our faith and our commitment to Torah, the closer we will bring the ultimate redemption when everything will become good. The Shabbos Sitter points out that the, the Jewish person declares his commitment to Hashem and that the precepts are really wonderful, amazing, warm, and happy for us, as we pointed out before, but bears repeating. And the Ba'ayot Halachiot Shaviot also points out, integral to the commitment which we strive is recognition and acceptance of the divine nature of the Halacha that it comes from Hashem. And in Perkei itself, we talked about that the best level is not just learning to learn, but learning to practice. That's a higher level of commitment. Halomid al-menas All the highest level studying in order to actual practice. If I study about something, but it's never going to be put, it's not as high a level. And that applies to our life as well. And Redeeming Revelance also points out our closest relationships should entail a deep, primal commitment. One will sometimes help his children for no other reason than the connection which exists between the parent and the child. And the Redeeming Relevance also points out the commitment from the nation is boiled down to the fact that Hashem wants us to fear Him, to walk in His ways, to love Him, and to serve Him with all His heart and all His soul, to keep the mitzvahs. And that's the proper attitude towards Hashem and towards our spouses and to people in general. Realizing that we need to internalize and act upon the fact that our relationships and commitments are not something we are just tied down to or forced upon us, God forbid, must have the proper attitude about them, accept them, cherish them, be involved with them, the delight, pleasantness, and good deed and action. I want to leave you off in the last two minutes of something fascinating in honor of the upcoming Purim holiday, which is very fascinating about talking about real commitment. Think about this past week's Haftorah, and then we're going to focus in on something from the Megillah for the last minute. This past week's Haftorah, again, we're connected to the previous Shabbos until around Tuesday or Wednesday. The previous Haftorah focusing on what it means to not fulfill a commitment. Hashem asks and tasks show, please destroy Amalek. He tells Shmuel to tell Shaul to wipe out Agag, a descendant of Amalek and the ancestor of Haman. Shaul fulfills much of the task, but he spared Agag himself and the animals as well. Shaul destroyed Amalek. This comes from Shmuel Aleph, Tetvav. Shaul destroys Amalek from Havila to Shor, but Shaul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the secondborn, the lambs, and all else that was of value. They would not prescribe them. They prescribed only what was cheap and worthless. 
Hashem tells Shmuel, I'm really upset at Shaul. He did not listen to me. I'm taking away the kingship from him. I'm giving it to someone better than him. Shmuel comes to Shaul. Shmuel says, ah, blessed be Hashem. I fulfilled Hashem's command. Then what Shmuel asks is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear. Shaul said they were brought from the Amalek. They wanted to bring it to Hashem. And Shmuel answers, does Hashem want burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obedience to Hashem's command? Obedience is better than sacrifice. Compliance is better than the fat of rams. And on a side note, do you think Hashem wants these tainted oxen, these tainted animals that are Amalekite? Does He want such low-level animals? Surely not. The point to remember is make sure to give in a way that benefits and is proper for the spouse and others. Don't give or do what you think they need or want. You think Hashem wanted Shaul to leave over Agag? Do you think Hashem wanted Lahavdil Shaul to leave over the oxen for sacrifices? No way. So make sure to do on a low level what your spouse wants, what your spouse needs. Do what they want and do what they need. Give what they want, give what they need, not what you think they need, not what you think they want. Find out what they really want. And the article Stone Chumash points out in the notes of the Haftorah that the original Amalek was the grandson of Esav. It was he who carried on his grandfather's legacy of hatred for the Jewish people. Only weeks after the exodus from Egypt, Amalek made that first sneak attack from the exodus when they were weak and vulnerable. We read Zohar to commemorate that attack and the decree to wipe the evil of Amalek of its people ideology from the earth. Haman was a descendant of Agag from the chapter of the Haftorah of this Pashavah that we just looked at. And the notes point out further, it's noteworthy to know that one of the beneficiaries of King Shaul misplaced compassion, which is a whole other topic, was Agag, the ancestor of Haman. The sages teach that Agag's wife and his and, and Agag himself, that tiny period produced Haman so many years later. Just because Shaul let him be alive for that tiny bit of period, Haman came into being centuries later and came to threaten the very existence of the Jewish people, all because of that misplaced compassion. Those who question how Hashem, the Hashem of mercy, caught our execution of quote-unquote blameless people should take note. Shaul's pity on Agag led to the near extermination of the Jewish people by Haman, God forbid. The point to remember is don't have misplaced compassion or lack fulfilling the commitment to your spouse or kids. Don't have more compassion for those around you than for your own family, your own flesh and blood. Don't have more compassion for animals or materials than for your own flesh and blood. Don't leave a commitment half done, halfway, fulfilled all the way, especially your wife and kids. If you say you'll take out the garbage, for example, don't bring it to the door and leave it there for five days. Take it out. And the last thing to point out before our points to carry over... Look at what Panina Halacha points out about Purim. Haman's decree actually stirred the singular quality of the segula of the Jewish people. The decree made it clear the Jewish people were willing to make great sacrifices in order to hold on to the faith. After all, they could have assimilated among the Gentiles and saved themselves from annihilation. But they did not try to escape the Jewish destiny. On contrary, the decree inspired them to repent, strengthen their faith and commitment to the Torah and the mitzvahs. The sages relate that the events of Purim were so amazing that the Israelites, the Israelites accepted the Torah anew at the time of Achashverosh. In a certain sense, the renewed commitment at the time was greater than their original acceptance of the Torah on Harsinai. It was forced on the Israelites, quote-unquote, sort of, at first, when they got it, it was at the foot of the mountain, and they say that the sages point out on Shabbat, that Hashem overturned the mountain and, and said to them, you must accept the Torah, otherwise you're, you're dead, the whole world is dead. And Rav said they still 
They re-accepted at the time of Ahasuerus. The Jews upheld and accepted upon themselves. They confirmed what they had accepted long before. And that's what the Pasuk, La Yehudim Haisa Ora, V'simcha, Sasam V'simcha, V'kar, Kentiyelanu. And the sages say, Ora, Torah. And they go through each one, Togon Brasmila and Torah, different things that were reaffirmed, recommitted at the time of Purim. The people, the Israelites' connection to their faith and Torah were absolute. The terrible decree made it clear that the price of belief might be unbearable. The Jews still chose to adhere to their faith, repent, pray to Hashem without any courage. Not only did they return to observe the mitzvos, they even instituted additional mitzvos, the mitzvos of Purim. And that's the last point to carry over. We should constantly reaffirm, recommit, and re-strengthen our commitment to our roles and relationships in life in the proper and right way, especially to Hashem and to our spouses. And just to recap, we're no strangers to commitment, especially in the Judaic lifestyle. Make sure to rise up and own up to commitments and fulfill them right. If you can't do it the whole way, the right way, don't do it at all. Live up to our credo as our people when we first got the Torah. First do, then talk and think about it later. Commit to do. Worry about the details later, especially when asked by a spouse or someone to take care of something. Fulfill your commitments in the right way. Do it in the proper order. First, take care of your spouse, then your kids, then yourself. Order your days in life in the right way, attacking one thing at a time in the proper manner. Feed your wife first, then your kids, then yourself. For example, live up to your commitments to Hashem and others as He does to us. Make sure to put commitments into action as relationships and commitments need tending to on a constant basis. We must be completely devoted to Hashem as well as to our spouses full throttle ahead. Give our best selves our time, energy, attention, resources, and time with our spouses living with Hashem a Torah right way. Make sure to have grand ideas of what commitments can look like and try as hard as we can to emulate that ideal, especially our relationship with Hashem and spouses. Go above and beyond for our relationships, our commitments, our spouses and Hashem. The standard itself is not enough, not good enough, not gold enough, not the ideal. Go further than required. Be truly kind and generous and chesed-oriented for others, especially the spouse and Hashem. Surround yourself with positive role models, examples of good relationships and good sticking to commitment, like loving couples who have the gold standard, or a tamad chacham with a wonderful regimen, or a beautiful yom tov or Shabbos meal. Realize and internalize and act upon the fact that relationships, commitments are not something we just tied down to or forced upon us, God forbid. Have the proper attitude about them, accept them, cherish them, be involved with them, with pleasantness and good action and deed. Give in a way that befits and is proper for the spouse and others. Don't give or do what you think they need or want. Do and give what they really need or want. It's not like you need to give them a robot vacuum when you know it's really your help that they need. Don't have misplaced compassion or lacking fulfillment to the commitment of your spouse or kids. Don't have more compassion for animals or those around you than your own nuclear family itself. Make sure to do what you say you'll do as well. Don't leave it halfway done. Do it all the way. And constantly reaffirm, recommit, and re-strengthen our commitment to our roles and our relationships in life in the right, proper way, especially to Hashem, especially to our spouses. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the lecture series with Reb T. God willing, we'll be back, Blaine Edder, in two weeks. And I'm your host, Reb T.